Why pick one city, one beach, one restaurant, or even one view? With Celebrity Cruises, you can have it all. Explore the best of Europe, the Caribbean, and Alaska with the best premium cruise line. And now get 75% off your second guest, plus bonus savings on select dates with Celebrity Cruises' semi-annual sale. Visit Celebrity.com, call 1-800-CELEBRITY, or contact your travel advisor. Offer applies to non-refundable fares and select sailing. Savings vary by stateroom category. Other terms apply. Visit Celebrity.com for details. Ships Registry Malta. It's your time. Join global thought leader, executive producer, and New York Times bestselling author T.D. Jakes and today's leading culture shifters for an experience unlike any other. At the 2024 International Leadership Summit, spiritual and business leaders can gain the practical tools they need to maximize their timing for success. With world-class discussions, breakout sessions, and networking opportunities, this is where your dreams turn into reality. Timing is everything, and your time is now. March 21st through 23rd in Dallas, Texas. Register today at thisisils.org. Through 25 seasons, 4,561 episodes. I believe the Oprah Winfrey Show was one of the greatest classrooms in the world. I really never thought of it that way. The aha moments, the breakthroughs, the LOLs, the connections, the occasional ugly cry. I miss him so terribly. I miss him every single minute. The moments that mattered. The eye-opening life lessons. Never allow them to take you somewhere else. I'm bringing them back. It's time to open the vault. I've personally chosen these classic episodes to share with you again. Every single person you ever will meet shares that common desire. They want to know, do you see me? Do you hear me? Does what I say mean anything to you? You are listening to The Oprah Winfrey Show, the podcast. Well, anybody who knows me well knows that I love to throw a great party for other people. And so today, we're bringing you an event we've been planning for months and months and months for somebody who is really one of the most special men in my life. Stedman knows it. I told him, look. <laughs> he is very, very special to me, so you have to live with it or move on. <laughs> Today, I'm unveiling it all. Every little detail was planned with love for this man who is one of the true loves of my life. His wife knows it, too. He was our special guest of honor. Guess who's coming to dinner? Sidney Poitier. This is a book that I have loved for a very long time. It's a spiritual autobiography, and it's called The Measure of a Man. In all, seven special readers would join Sidney Poitier for our Dinner of a Lifetime. The emails poured in from viewers telling us about their personal connections to this book. And what about The Measure of a Man was the most inspiring to you? After weeks of intense screening, our party list was complete. So this is what we did. We crossed the country, surprising each of our guests with this beautiful invitation, because, you know, I believe a good party starts with a nice invitation, so it lets you know kind of what the party's going to be like, you know? So if it was plastic, you'd have an idea. <laughs> it's velvet, so you have an idea. So here's what happened when they found out that they were coming to dinner. Don Butler, a single mom, said she used Sydney's life story as the guide to raising her two sons. Philip 
McAdoo assigned his class of inner city teen boys to read The Measure of a Man. Read out loud. What? Spago and Beverly Hills. Oh my gosh. Brian Doss, a dentist, said discovering Sidney Poitier as a child helped him escape his racist upbringing. Wow. That's next week. Tommy Hayes Brown told us this book has become a manual for raising his four sons with honor and integrity. Oh my God. Thank you, Oprah. Everybody <laughs> said thank you, Oprah. Thank you, Oprah. Thank you, Oprah. <laughs> Bexie Lane wrote about how Sidney Portier's story spoke to her about her own possibility. Guess who's coming to dinner? Tiffany Belk said Sidney Portier is the father figure she never had. For Lisa Carney, the measure of a man helped her cope with her divorce. Lisa? Hi, I'm Patrick Riley with the Oprah Winfrey Show. Oh my God! And I have a delivery for you. Oprah Winfrey invites you to the dinner of a lifetime with the legendary Oh my God! Oh my God! How I feel about him, too. Oh, y'all are good, because you didn't even get the invitation and you cried. <laughs> That's very good. Well, the entire event was, because you love him, too, right? Yeah. yeah, we all love him. And have you all read the book? Yeah. Yes, after you read the book, you love him even more. The entire event was a labor of love, really, from my heart to the man who made me believe that I could dream a bigger dream. Because you all have heard me tell the story before. I saw him when I was 10 years old watching him get the Academy Award. And so, for a dinner of such magnitude, love truly has to be and was in every detail. To create a magical evening worthy of a true living legend like Sidney Poitier, I called on the best in the business, Colin Cowie. For the dinner of a lifetime, Oprah wanted me to make sure that we pulled out all the stops and made this really, really special. Colin says that any spectacular event that you're planning to have starts with the perfect invitation. So our guests receive lush burgundy velvet works of art handmade by premier New York designer Ellen Weldon. Sidney Poitier's favorite Hollywood restaurant, Spago, Beverly Hills, owned by chef to the stars Wolfgang Puck, was just the ideal setting for our dinner of a lifetime. I have known Sidney Poitier for many years. He is a good friend of mine. He's even the godfather of my son, Oliver. Colin literally transformed Spago's private room from the ground up. A rich red carpet was installed just for our event. The walls were lovingly covered in a delicate gray silk fabric and finished with hand-wrapped red velvet columns. To set the mood, Colin added six Swarovski crystal scounces and a dazzling chandelier. Top floral designers from Mark's Garden brought in, guess how many roses? 4,000. And as a personal touch, which every party should have, we illuminated the room with some of Sidney Poitier's most distinguished virtues, all of which are themes in his book. So we wanted to change the room because he comes to this restaurant all the time. So when he walked in, even he was surprised. Colin was just getting started, though. He created a dinner table that was an absolute feast for the eyes. Oprah always talks about love is in the details, and we spared no expense and no details when it came to the dinner table. Every piece of silver on the table is sterling silver, and it's from the house of Christoffel. 
And this pattern is called Malmaison from Napoleon's Chateau in France. 52 people work on this before it makes its way to the table. Even personalized menus were created to match the invitations. Now, all we need to do is make sure Wolfgang's got a great dinner for us. He created this menu for the dinner of a lifetime, especially for Sydney. We cook for him three times a week at the restaurant, many times at his home, too. We know really what he loves. For the main course, Wolfgang is cooking up one of Sydney's favorites, chicken with black truffles. Mm -mm. Finally, master cake maker Sam Godfrey created his own one-of-a-kind cake. But you cannot judge this book by its cover. Inside, a delicious red velvet cake to match the decor. Our guests even arrive in style, pulling up to our party in seven brand new Cadillac Escalades. It was a stunning sight. Let the dinner of a lifetime begin. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the famous Spago restaurant. I'm here in Beverly Hills, California, where we've just put the final touches on our dinner of a lifetime. Because today we get to honor someone I've admired my entire life. I'm happy to be able to call him my friend and a personal hero, Sidney Poitier. During some of the most racially turbulent times in our American history, Sidney Poitier shattered stereotypes by becoming Hollywood's first black leading man. In 1964, by winning the Academy Award for Best Actor, he became the first African-American man to be given that honor, and he redefined what was possible for generations to come. So now, as he marks the 80th year of a legendary life, Sidney Poitier shares some of his lessons and virtues in his beautifully crafted, best-selling spiritual autobiography, The Measure of a Man. What do you think, Mr. Poitier, that yes. all of us are gathered around this table here in the year 2007 to talk about a book that you wrote several years ago and also a book that really is an extension of the first book, um, This Life, that you wrote, I don't know, when in, in the 60s. What do you think of that? Well, <laughs> it would be the sixth time I have pinched myself <laughs> because of this gathering. I am greatly honored by it. I'm greatly honored by your presence, and uh, I'm looking forward to the exchange. It isn't just the dinner that brought me here. <laughs> um, I've heard about you people, and I find what I know of you to be very impressive. And uh, I thank you for coming. Well, Don, I understand that you are probably the only person at, at this table, other than myself, who had read the original biography, This Life, many yes. years ago. Why? What was it that had you drawn to Sidney Poitier? Well, when I was eight, I had a special love affair. My own love affair with Mr. Poitier. Oh, wow. <laughs> she tells me when I'm 80 years old. <laughs> 25 years ago, as a young single mother with two boys, Don says she drew from Sidney Poitier's life to inspire them to greater heights. Every time I wanted to make a point, I would say, you know, if I wanted to stress education, I wanted to stress that they can do anything that they wanted to do, I would always tell them about you. And then there's Tiffany, whose mother was doing the same thing to her as you were doing to your sons. Is that not right? <laughs> yes, saying? that's definitely true. He was the model, Mr. Portier, you were the model for being well presented, being well articulated. Even when I was being made fun of and, you know, in school for talking white, 
you know, you were that model. And through reading the book, I was so just amazed with, again, what you had to go through and everything that you championed. In the 1967 classic, In the Heat of the Night, Sidney Poitier plays a black detective trying to solve a murder in the deep, racially explosive South. The original script called for a white business owner to slap Sidney's character in the face. It was then that Sidney Poitier made a stunning suggestion. I told the director that the script needed to be changed. He said, well, what do you suggest? I said, shoot this scene so that without a nanosecond of hesitation, I whack him right back across the face with a backhand slap. You know, I love the parts of the book where you had artistic control. When no black actor was doing that, was revising scripts, was suggesting, you know, I don't like this, or I should turn around and slap him back. But was it artistic control, or was it just a decision that you had made? It was a decision I had made uh, in the absence of artistic control, mm -hmm. in a way. I didn't have the power in those days <laughs> to, to say, and I truly didn't, to say, well, uh, I won't do that unless you fix it. I could only say, I won't do that as it stands. But this is very interesting. I've always thought, after reading um, Measure of a Man, I've wondered, what would have happened had you come to the United States at a much younger age? There are many places in the book where we see that your sense of self and character had already been defined by the time you reached the segregated uh, Jim Crow United States. Sidney Poitier's life began on a remote island in the Bahamas called Cat Island. He was the youngest of seven children raised by poor, hardworking parents, Evelyn and Reginald. They taught by example the strong values of pride and integrity that have always guided him. Sidney says he never considered the color of his skin while living on Cat Island. But when he was 15, he left the Bahamas for Miami, where a dangerous world was waiting to define what a black boy could be. Do you, do you ever think about what would have happened if you had been, you know, seven years old and not 15? I think it would have had an effect on me. Mm -hmm. But because you were 15, your identity was already formed. My identity was formed. I mm -hmm. knew largely who I was. Mm -hmm. right. And who I was was not different from who my father was mm -hmm. and my mother was. Mm. So that when Florida said to me that you are not who you think you are, mm -hmm. I said to Florida, I am not what you think I am. Young Sidney got a job as a delivery boy for a drugstore when he was 15, but nobody had explained the rules that came with his job and his skin color. I went to the front door and rang the bell and a lady came to the door and said, what do you want? Good afternoon, ma'am. I said, I've come to deliver your package from the drugstore. Get around to the back door where you belong, she snapped. I couldn't figure it out, so I left the package on the step. Then you go home, and then there's the clan waiting for yeah. your family. They assumed he is a black boy in Florida. Mm -hmm. He would know his place. Right, right. exactly. And he had just arrived and coming from a community where his place was to be wherever he wanted to be. Right. Right. At the front door. <laughs> right. And thank God that pharmacist didn't tell you. Thank God he didn't tell you to go to the back door. You know? Because mm -hmm. your life may have turned out completely different if you'd have known. 
if an, if if enough people had told me that over time, right, uh, I suppose it might have begun to sink in. Well, this is what I loved about Tommy. He has four sons, four cute little boys, yeah. and you've now taken Measure of a Man to be your your uh, manual for fatherhood. That's right. How so? Well, um, I mean, I've read. I've been a father seven years now, and I only get one shot. You know, and I got to do it right. This is everything I've been looking for in a how-to manual on how to raise men, mm. not boys, mm. men. Mm. I'm raising men. There's enough grown boys walking around here. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you know, I just, you know, I thank you because the book is just uh, when you read when you read the anecdotes about uh, strength and uh, dignity and character. These are, this is what I want to teach my, my boys. You know, one of the main points that I've already shared with them is know who you are. You know, very simply, just know who you are. So when someone calls my oldest son, Ori, a name in school, well, you know who you are. Mm -hmm. So that does not mean you. you. Let it fall away like an like a autumn leaf because you know who you are. Right? Beautiful. The year was 1946, and Sidney Poitier was an understudy with New York's American Negro Theater. On opening night, the lead actor, a young Harry Balafonte, couldn't perform. So at the last minute, Sidney Poitier took his place. And as fate would have it, a major casting director was in the audience and made him an offer. I couldn't escape the feeling that not only was I one lucky youngster, but something more had to be at play here. I had grown up in a culture where unseen forces lurked just outside of view. You describe yourself as lucky a lot, Mr. Poitier, in, in the book. How do you feel about the word luck? It sounds like through reading it, you were more prepared than lucky. Because you believe in that definition that I believe in, that I believe there's no such thing as luck, that it's preparation meeting the moment of opportunity. Yes. But he does use the word lucky a lot. Yeah, well, I think... Uh, <clears throat> I think luck is akin to serendipity. Mm -hmm. It implies that uh, out of nowhere, serendipity dips down and kisses us on a cheek, mm -hmm. and wonderful things happen to us. And these forces are influential in our lives. They help to mold us and to shape us. I believe that we have free will. I, I believe, too, that free will operates within this frame uh, of nature and God, mm -hmm. if you will. But we have responsibilities. It is not that we can sit back. Tell this group what you were telling me. You were saying that even now you still see things through the eyes of your mother. Yes, I do. The whole experience that my mom had with the, uh, the soothsayer. Yeah. Mm. Yes. Yeah. 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 Tell us that. Tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> Read the book. <laughs> well, she was, as, as you know, I was born prematurely by more than two months, and I was less than three pounds. There were no doctors. There were midwives mm -hmm. in those days for, for, for us. It didn't look good, obviously, for, for me. But by the end of the following day, there seemed to be absolutely no hope. So she stopped at this soothsayer. They sat down, and the soothsayer was in some kind of trance. 
and she stayed in it for a while. And when her eyes flew open, she said some things to my mother. She said, don't worry about your son. He will grow up to travel to most of the corners of the earth. He will walk with kings. Your name will be carried all over the world. For 50 cents, my mother found the support she needed for backing a long shot. So here your mother was, this poor, you know, wife of a tomato farmer yep. on Cat Island, and she told her that you would see the world and that you would walk with kings. Mm -hmm. Come on, say it. Come on. <laughs> walk with kings, says the soothsayer. Yeah. I'd like to get her in here today. I know it. <laughs> I have to assume, at least I'd had to assume, that I am left with the responsibility to effectuate my own survival. I was lucky, though, too, you know. Lucky. <laughs> I think that there are things way beyond our understanding. Mm -hmm. Yes. Do you think that that force was working with you when you first moved to New York City, arriving in the city, not even having, you know, adequate clothing, and it turns cold, and you're in New York City mm -hmm. sleeping on the rooftops with not even a coat. I don't think that we make many moves without the force knowing about it. Yeah. yeah. If you call it God if or not. If you call it God or not. We still have responsibilities. Mm -hmm. Isn't it amazing, astounding, that he was just this boy alone, basically. Boy. He was a boy. Mm -hmm. Alone, moving, you know, on the train, arriving in New York City, trying to figure it out. Right. And in figuring it out, you came to this profound idea. Right this profound theory of life, that you are responsible for you. Right. And that's really yeah. How does that happen? Yeah. I wish you'd tell me. <laughs> <laughs> it was 1968, and Dr. Martin Luther King had been assassinated. During this turbulent time, Sidney Poitier was breaking down social barriers by starring in the top three films of that year. He made history by playing the romantic lead in a film that was banned in many parts of the South called Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. This was the first film to feature an interracial romance in a positive light. I'm married to an African-American man, and he was bused into white schools, and he has been accused of, you know, talking white or thinking he's better, whatever. Anyway, we just go about our lives, you know, and, right. and if we run into anyone who looks askance or doesn't want to seat us, I just think, well, that just told me something about them. And right. it, it right. never occurs to me or to my right. husband, John, to think, oh, maybe there's something wrong with what we're feel doing. sorry for yeah. You know, it's funny, when, um, when I read the, the same passage and knowing who you are, um, you know, I had incidents when, when I was eight years old and was told I couldn't swim in my friend's pool, his dad came home from work early, saw me in the pool, and told me to get out. Why did he tell you to get out? Uh, because I was black. He said my hair would clog up the pool. Wow. And at, at first, did you think he was kidding? At first, um, you had said in your book, I waited for the punchline. Yeah. <laughs> and after, when the punchline didn't come, I got out of the pool, and I walked home. I thought bad about myself. Mm. You know, I, from that moment on, I was just like, something's wrong with me. Mm. And I carry that until yesterday, really. <laughs> you know, it's been a lifelong journey. It's been truly a lifelong journey for me. So you've raised six daughters? Yep. And what was your philosophy With for raising girl? six daughters? Yeah. 
girls were problematical in that they they have to be protected because there are things out there in the world in schools that uh, can be prob problematical. You're talking about boys? Boys? <laughs> 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 yeah? Uh, okay. My girls have uh, grown up wonderfully well and uh, they're doing quite nicely. They've given me five grandchildren and, uh, and a great grandchild. And I'm happy with them as people though, mm -hmm. especially happy with them as people. This is what I understand that your birthday was last week and all of them were here? Yes. I know all of them were here because we gathered all of them together to, to ask them a few things about you. <laughs> <laughs> You're kidding. No. <laughs> you are kidding. Surprise, Daddy. Happy 80th birthday. We love you. I think my dad passed on to me and to all of his children to really have a sense of who you are and a sense of self. He has such a strong moral and ethical core that growing up we tried to emulate that. I used to think, my God, he's God. He knows everything. And I was just marveled at him. He always will be amazing to me. One of the fondest memories I have of Daddy was when I was in elementary school and my sister Beverly and I were on the bus and someone had called Beverly a name. The next day, Daddy got on the bus, and he looked around at all the kids on the bus, and he said, now, you know, it's not very nice to call somebody else a name. It hurts their feelings. And it was amazing. They took it as a great learning lesson, and so did I. He has a lot of patience. To have six daughters, yeah. you have to have patience, you know? Don't you think, Sydney? Yes, I do. <laughs> What I've taken from my dad and passed on to my children is the way he disciplined us. His number one thing is having that discipline in your life in order to grow. He's a great actor, and even though he's 80, he's still up in movies. He should make more movies. Lilies of the Field was the best movie I've ever seen. He actually ran wads and climbed downstairs just like me. It felt nice to see our old grandfather on the movie because he's so special and really nice and kind. I love the book, Measure of a Man. What impressed me the most was the way that he put pen to paper and so eloquently expressed himself. One of my fondest memories of Daddy was when I was a little girl and I'd get nightmares. And I'd go and get in the bed with my parents and Daddy would say, just sleep on your stomach and the nightmares will go away and you won't have any anymore. And I did, and I really didn't have any nightmares and I do that to this day. Papa talks a lot about qualities that are passed down from generation to generation. And if I have an ounce of his passion and drive, I know that I'll be okay. Um, and that's something that I'm definitely working on. And she's working on it too. <laughs> We're so proud of you. We love you. Happy birthday. Nice. Thanks. You. You. I know. Well, I called your lovely wife, Joanna, who allows me to talk to Sydney uh, on a regular basis. And I called Joanna and said I had this idea, and that's how we got them all. Oh, my life. They were all there. Isn't that something? Isn't that just lovely? <laughs> nice, eh? And see, to me, that's the measure of a man. Mm -hmm. When your children are talking like that, that's what I want. Mm -hmm. You know, I want to be like that. Mm -hmm. you know? Trust me, 
you'll have it like that. <laughs> in 1964, I was awarded the Oscar for Best Actor for my performance in Lilies of the Field, the first African-American so honored. Did I say to myself, this country is waking up and beginning to recognize that certain changes are inevitable? No, I did not. I knew that we hadn't overcome because I was still the only one. You had mentioned in your book that you felt that you were an outsider back then. Well, uh, I am an outsider by instinct. I have always had a sense of myself uh, as the observer, but I don't mind it. An outsider to me is the person who, by instinct, prefers to walk on the edge. So I've done it, and I didn't fall off. <laughs> I survived fairly okay. I am who I am. And whenever I am treated in a way that I feel that is contrary to how I hold myself, uh, I will defend myself by improving myself. The more I improve myself, the more of a man I become, the more of a humane person I become. With little education and no job skills, Sidney Poitier survived the tough streets of New York City, working as a dishwasher until one day he answered an ad for actors. Acting didn't sound any more difficult than washing dishes or parking cars. The man in charge quickly let me know that I was misguided in my assumptions. I could barely read. He snatched the script from my hand, spun me around, grabbed me by the scruff of my neck and the back of my pants, and marched me on tippy toes towards the door. His assessment was like a death sentence for my soul. Well, that's why when the director called you, you're nothing but a dishwasher. Go back to washing dishes. If he hadn't done that, I wouldn't be sitting here, I'll tell you that. But you wondered, now how did he know I was a dishwasher? Now that was the question. Yeah. That question was the question that turned my life. The question could have, were I someone else, the question could have said, oh, well, what the hell? But instead, and you went back and decided that you were going to do what? I went back and I decided that I was going to become an actor to show him <laughs> right. that he was wrong. So you're me. thrown out yeah. from this audition. You must have been really bad. That's really good. Thanks a lot. <laughs> yeah, and so you went home and learned by listening to the radio. Yes, I learned. Uh, my accent was... Bahamian, it was terrible. It was sing-songy, as most Caribbean accents are. And, like uh, what? Can you give us? No, I'm not going to give you. So I decided that the first thing I would have to tackle was the accent. I was wor working as a dishwasher, and I saved my money and bought a small radio. And when I was done with my dishwashing job, I would turn on the radio and listening to many different voices, and I settled for a particular voice, and the guy's name was Norman Brokenshire. It was distinctly American, but with a very British flavor. 
He would say, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, this is Norman Brokenshire. And every word he spoke, every sentence he made, I would repeat it. Mm. By the end of six months, I was ready for an audition. Wow. And that's when I first got in there. How much formal education did you actually have? I can't tell from the book. It was two years when I went to, uh, to Nassau. But I left Cat Island at the age of 10 and a half. And that schooling on Cat Island was absolutely minimal. And it had to be shared with days in the, in the field, the tomato farm. So uh, we had no books. I didn't learn to read very well. But I started learning to read better in New York City. I was washing dishes in a small neighborhood restaurant in Queens, New York. On my evening meal breaks, I sat in a quiet area of the restaurant reading newspapers, trying to sound out each syllable of each unfamiliar word. An old Jewish waiter noticed my effort, took pity, and offered to help. He became my tutor as well as my guardian angel of the moment. Every night, we sat in the same booth in that quiet area of the restaurant, and he helped me learn to read. Did you ever see him again? Years later, I was compelled to try to find him. I couldn't. And I do, even to this day, regret that I did not have a chance to thank him and explain to him the good services he had rendered to me that was essential to my success as a, as a film actor. Mm -hmm. And I think you ultimately paid it forward by showing black people what was possible. You know, the importance of speaking well and... That question bothers me a lot. The question of education. We are too rich a country to have inner city education what it is. It is each family, I believe, who has the responsibility to educate their children, no matter what their own education is. Right. It's interesting because I work with inner city kids, and what was so brilliant about when I introduced the book to them, they said, wow, I didn't know Sidney Poitier could barely read in the beginning, and that registered. They could connect with us because they, they can really Because Sidney Poitier and so many others now stand for what is possible. Exactly. Yeah. I'd like to make a toast. I'd like to make a toast to the forces. I'd like to thank the forces, whatever you choose to call the forces, that allowed me to, at 10 years old, the forces that put me in front of my Magnavox black and white television set to see Sidney Poitier receive the Academy Award and planted that seed. That moment that I saw you, I've told this story many times before, but it is true, the moment that I saw him accept the award for Lilies of the Field, it said to me that this is possible because what your life has meant to all of us says that your love, your sense of honor, your sense of integrity, it is possible for all of us. And so here's to you, and here's to your beautiful book, Measure of a Man. Here, here. Here's to you, who I've loved my entire life, and even before I was born. <laughs> oh my goodness. Sydney Poitier. <laughs> Salud. 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 Can I ask you this? What did it mean turn, for you to turn 80? 
What was was there a significance to you? This is the seventh day since my 80th birthday. Mm -hmm. And you have to be the first person to ask me. <laughs> it makes me feel good that I have attended to some of my responsibilities over the years. I have my children, my wife, and my friends. So it feels wonderful uh, getting to be 80. I still, to this day, when I call, I'm just a little nervous. Joanna. <laughs> and sometimes she'll say, he just went to the supermarket. I go, he went to the supermarket? He goes to the supermarket? Yeah. And, and Whole Foods. I'm my wife's wife. <laughs> Bring out the gifts oh for our guests. Yes, I love a present on a silver tray. <laughs> Yes, I do. I know, it's what I, it can Thank be you. really extraordinary to have you all here. And the journey that it took to be here. Yes, ma'am. It's an absolute yes, honor. It is an honor. The day that I picked up the book, this is such, this is a corny story. I had Chinese food and I had a fortune cookie. And I opened the fortune cookie and what the fortune said to me was, what you will discover is yourself. And I thought that was really interesting and I kept that fortune. And what happened, I kept reading the book, looking for things to tell my sons. And what I found was me yeah. and my dignity through you. And I want to thank you for that because that is the gift I can pass to my boys. Yes. So thank you thank very you. much. Thank you. Everybody, thank you. Safe thank journeys you. back to your homes. Thank you. Thank, thank, you. You. thank you, Oprah. I'm Oprah Winfrey, and you've been listening to the Oprah Winfrey Show, the podcast. If you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Join me next week for another Oprah Show the podcast. And I thank you for listening. <laughs>